0: Hello 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 It's 12 minutes past 5 on Thursday the 11th of February 2021 and you're listening to The Blondie Show Je suis Blondie évidemment and today I'm going to be talking about death something which unfortunately very many of us are currently dealing with But before I get onto that I'd like to thank everyone who listened to episode 1 and let me know that they enjoyed it And to address the handful of trolls who suggested I was only having a go at the fashion types who refer to people they've never met before as their family because they don't include me in that and I feel left out. Trolls, if you're listening, you couldn't be more wrong. I was actually having a go at them because I have been asked by their PR agents to join their families so many times that I feel I can and should conclusively state that they are so full of shit their eyes are brown. I would say no offence to these people if I thought that they were listening, but I wouldn't mean it, and as long as those requests keep coming in, as they have been, I think it's safe to assume that they aren't. I said at the end of episode one that I might be talking to someone else in this one, and not just in here on my own again, but I am yet to find or think of anyone who ticks both boxes of being a- interesting and be interested in coming on my show no i'm joking of course the list is a long one at least the list of people who tick the former box is a long one i just wanted to record another episode while i wait for a second microphone to arrive acquiring a microphone in post-brexit corona-stricken britain has so far proven to be a challenge of the herculean variety but it shall be done i promise you that It has been said that the best thing one can do for their social life is die. And I think that there's some truth in that. When someone dies, the competition of who knew them better begins, and the people who notably hated them while they were alive punch the air, knowing that they will in all likelihood be thought of only fondly forevermore. evermore. There are exceptions, of course. There are people whose reputations have been tarnished posthumously, like Jimmy Savile, for example. But for the most part, death mythologizes people and casts them in a more positive light than they ever would have been cast in while they were alive. Much as I'd like to be proven wrong... I suspect that even the popularity of Lady Diana Spencer, who was often cast in a blindingly positive light while she was alive, would not have sustained in the way it has done were it not for it climaxing the way it did when it did. Best wishes be upon to her. That misremembering people as anything other than what they were is a part of so many people's grieving process irks me. I'm all for amplifying someone's positive traits, and generally speaking, I don't think that we should speak ill of the dead. But everyone has their flaws, and to deny this would be delusional. I believe that when we love someone, we ought to love them for who they are and not who we want them to be. I also believe that just in case we don't all end up watching our own funerals perched on a cloud, we ought to let the people we love and appreciate know how loved and appreciated they are. I've been thinking about appreciation a lot lately on account of a book I recently read called The Luck Factor. In this book, Richard Wiseman, a professor of psychology, explains how tens of thousands of volunteers over a ten-year period helped him to debunk superstitious thinking about good luck and form and fortify his theory that it is attributable solely to the adoption of four simple principles, the fourth of which being the principle of always looking on the bright side. Regarding this principle, he suggests keeping what he calls a luck diary and jotting down in it at the end of each day some of the things that you are thankful for. I was writing one night about my grandmother, having seen her for the first time in many months, and I realised a couple of paragraphs into my writing that what I was writing sounded like a eulogy. And I wondered why that was, and I came to the conclusion that it was simply because the act of appreciating someone, really truly appreciating them, is not one that comes naturally to us until that person is no longer with us. Now, it's not my place to tell anyone how to live or die or treat someone close to them living or dying, but that just seems like a terrible shame to me. In the next segment, I will read to you the aforementioned writing in my luck diary. And when I say my luck diary, I of course mean my laptop. There's more to life than books open, you know, not much more. Oh, there's more to life than books open, you know, not much more. Not much more. My grandmother, Salma, was born in northern Lebanon to a mother about 13 years her senior, who is thankfully still alive. She is the eldest sibling of 12. Her mother was pregnant 14 times in about as many years, but two of her babies died when they were very young. I said a few moments ago that Salma's mother is about 13 years older than her because we don't know for sure exactly how old Salma herself is. By the time her parents could afford to register her birth, neither of them could quite recall the date, month or year of it. That Salma doesn't know when her actual birthday is, nor care to know, will come as no great surprise to anyone who has met her. She does, however, make a point of knowing and of remembering the details, both minor and major, of the lives of others. She can tell you off the top of her head her nine younger brothers' names, her two younger sisters' names, my grandfather's six older sisters' names, all of their children's names and almost all of their children's children's names. My father had, I think, 88 first cousins the last time I asked her to do this. I really would like to make a film of her drawing a family tree from memory, but I keep forgetting to. When Salma was sixteen years old, my grandfather, Henny, said to her, I'd like you to marry me. If you come quietly, you won't regret it. But if you refuse me, my village will wage war on yours. Charming, je sais. She granted him his wish, largely out of fear and selflessness, but that fear soon turned to love. In fact, she was madly jealous of any other woman who ever caught Henny's eye over the course of their 60-year relationship. She will recall boarding a bus with him in Merton and sobbing and pounding on his chest right there and then on the bus when she thought that the bus driver, who was a woman, had called him Henny, It later transpired that she had actually called him honey in that way that people who have never met you before sometimes do. It would have been all the more deplorable of my grandfather to have become acquainted with that bus driver in that way, given that this incident took place on what was only their second day in the UK. But back to the early 60s, So certain was Henny that he and Salma would acquire Australian work visas, as everyone else in the village had done, that he had her sell their house and almost all of her belongings while the process pended. Their applications were denied for some reason, and for five years Salma had to live with her father-in-law, Ablen, who was, in her words, the greatest man ever, and her mother-in-law, Deba, who she thought less highly of. In this time, Salma bore a child, my father, and suffered one miscarriage on the side of the road after seeing the dead bodies of six men from a neighbouring village laid out on the ground whilst driving. I think that she was very shocked. In 1967, Salma, Henny and my father moved to London. One of my grandmother's aunties had married an Englishman named Francis and he helped with their immigration and let them live in his and Salma's auntie's kitchen on Quicks Road in Wimbledon. My father and my grandmother still live in Wimbledon, but not in the same house as they did then, and neither of them sleep on the kitchen floor anymore. They each have their own room. My father has been good to my grandmother – He's pushed himself to provide for her and protect her in every way he can. They will both remember one near-catastrophic incident a few years ago when she picked up some superglue off the kitchen counter, thinking that it was Vaseline to apply to her chafed inside thighs and arse after walking around all day in trousers. He bolted up the stairs and into the bathroom when he realised what she was doing and snatched it out of her hand, stopping her from gluing her arsehole closed with only a split second to spare. I tell a slightly souped-up version of this story to my stepchildren on an almost nightly basis, and I tell them that the reason why people in their native country take the day off on the 4th of July every year is so that they can celebrate my father and his heroic actions across the pond. Salma has been good to him too. She has a very maternal instinct, no doubt on account of being the older sister to so many boys. She recently told me that she breastfed one of her brothers, and many other people in the village's babies too, because she had so much milk and no one could afford to buy it from the shop. She told me this as if it were the most natural thing in the world, and I suppose it is, but still, I think that it's quite remarkable. Well, I felt that it merited making a remark about. Anyway, that is just one of the countless examples I could give of the way she has always lived her life, thinking of the needs of others. I know she can't stand to see me not eat for more than a few minutes in one go. I don't know whether the rate at which I consume food was once dictated by the rate at which she produces it, and it now just is what it is, but I know that it's wholly abnormal, and I suspect... But that is largely thanks to her. And I cannot talk about Selma without mentioning her cooking. She has always been a cook. She cooked for her brothers and sisters when she was a child, while her mother was pregnant with more of them. Then she worked as a kitchen hand in a restaurant in England when she moved here, then as a chef in an NHS hospital, and then as the head chef of a major catering organisation that's name escapes me. And then in 2012, she made the long-awaited transition from cook to cookbook author, and now she is a best-selling, award-winning cookbook author. She has also worked at various times in her life as a cleaner, but she hasn't written any books on that. Salma is anything but smug about the success of her cookbooks. Should you ever compliment her on them, she won't reject your compliment or dismiss it as such, but she will insist that she has only ever acted in the way that one who has been afforded the opportunities that she has been ought to act. The only thing she might be more thankful for than the opportunities that England has provided her and our family is its TV. She loves English TV, even more than I do. Recently, she has had shows like The Chase on the big screen, with the live-streamed mass at the church up the road on the iPad in the foreground on the footstool, while she plays Candy Crush or some other rubbish on her phone on the sofa. It's quite a sight. She's brilliant at Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, having seen every episode ten times or more, but terrible at Would I Lie to You. Basically, she thinks that people are joking when they aren't, and vice versa. She still thinks that I'm joking about George Michael being a gayman, which is mind-blowing to me. Despite consuming about 10 hours of television a day for the last 10 years or so, she still doesn't really know who anyone is. I remember a few years ago, when Stephen Hawking's funeral was on, she turned to me and said, ''You know, he was actually a very clever man.'' I was so confused by this statement, and I said something like, ''Yes, I know that. He was a very clever man, famously. It was sort of his thing. Why do you think that his funeral is being televised and attended by all these famous people?'' To which she shrugged and replied, ''I thought they just felt sorry for him.'' Salma calls me on average between 20 and 30 times a day. Those 20 or 30 calls tend to come in in clusters of five at a time and those clusters are always a healthy mix of WhatsApp video calls, FaceTime audio calls and just normal calls. She never calls about anything in particular. She normally just wants to see my son or ask me when I'm going to stop skateboarding for a living and whether or not I know that it's possible for a dentist to permanently fit a white false tooth in my mouth by attaching it to the two neighbouring teeth with an adhesive bridge, as she has had done herself. I am well aware of this possibility. The pandemic has been difficult for her, being the sociable creature that she is, and it's been difficult for me to not see her. My father and brother have been keeping her under lock and key, which has, unsurprisingly, caused all sorts of arguments in my family. Arguments which I like to stay out of. To be fair to them, if there is one person who quite simply cannot be trusted to not hug and kiss strangers in the street in the midst of a pandemic, it's my grandmother, Salma. That was the sound of the Smiths being played on a medieval recorder simulator, which ironically, my friend Phil, who puts my jingles together, had to upgrade to a modern computer to use. In the last segment, I shared with you a bit of writing I did in appreciation of my grandmother. If you listened to it, and I'm assuming you did listen to it because this bit comes after that bit, you will have gathered that she is not the type to actively seek appreciation, but many are. Many see fame and the prospect of their name living forever as something of a consolation prize for not being able to live forever themselves, and rather tragically, waste their lives trying to achieve it. I don't want to linger on the topic of fame for too long, because I think it really deserves its own episode, but I can't not touch on it in this one. I'd like to do so by reading to you one paragraph from Marcus Aurelius' Meditations, his notepad which he supposedly never intended to be published hear me now. One who feels a passionate desire for posthumous fame fails to recognize that everyone who remembers him will die very swiftly in his turn, and then again the one who takes over from him, until all memory is utterly extinguished as it passes from one person to another, and each in succession is lit and snuffed out. And supposing for the sake of argument that those who will remember are indeed immortal, and the remembrance is immortal, what is that to you? I need hardly say that praise means nothing to the dead, but what does it mean to the living, unless perhaps it serves some secondary purpose? For you are rejecting inopportunely the gift that nature grants you in the present, and are setting your mind on what others may say of you. How profound is that? out of ten. About an eight and a half, I'd say. What I love so much about this book is that though it was written some 1800 years ago, it is still so relevant today. Not only does it show us that we humans worry about much the same things as each other, but also that we have done for thousands of years. I myself derive great comfort from that, and my own compulsion to remind people of that was actually the impetus for doing this show. Anyway, Marcus Aurelius. That Marcus Aurelius is still a known, chart-topping name like my grandmother's after all this time – does somewhat disprove his blanket statements that everyone who remembers anyone will die soon after that person, and that any remaining memory of that person will be snuffed out with them. But I do fundamentally agree with him that to think of what other people think of you too much while you're alive, and of what they will think of you after you're dead, is to deny yourself the greatest pleasure I know of, being the ability to live in the moment. This is something I think every member of my generation I've ever met, which is about seven people, would do well to bear in mind. Jingle. A dreaded sunny day, so let's go where we want it and I'll meet you at the cemetery gates. Kids and Yates are on your side, but you lose because with love our world is on mine. Now. Let's turn our minds to the supernatural, shall we? We shall. Last week, I asked you via Instagram, if you were a ghost, who would you haunt? How would you haunt them and why? I myself have never been haunted by a ghost, much as I'd like to be. It seems to me that ghosts are wasted on the non-believers. Perhaps that's the point. Anyway, many of you responded to my question saying that you'd haunt me. And while I don't wish for any of you to die any time soon, I will hold you to that, somehow. Here are your answers. 1. Robert in Leicester says, I would find a non-presuming, mediocre-at-best author and haunt them into writing amazing ghost stories that'd bring them untold wealth. And then I'd possess them. I don't know if Robert's three-point plan would classify as a get-rich-quick scheme as such, but it's a nice idea nonetheless. Robert, thank you for sharing. Two I would haunt Pretty Patel by smuggling immigrants into her house while she sleeps because I hate her. That was from Ashwin in Watford. Can I shock you, Ashwin? You are not alone in your hatred of Pretty Patel. Far from it, in fact. About 70% of the responses I received to this question were about haunting her or other members of the Conservative Party. So that's nice to know. Many people also responded saying that they'd like to haunt Margaret Thatcher, more surprisingly. If you're one of those people, and you're listening, let me be the one to tell you that Mrs Thatcher is as dead as a doorknob, and she has been for about seven years now. She's buried at the Royal Hospital of Chelsea on Royal Hospital Road in Chelsea, if you don't believe me, or if you wish to pay her a visit. Although that might ironically result in her haunting you. The phrase, let sleeping dogs lie, springs to mind. 3. Edna in Manchester says I would haunt my grandchildren in school by spell-checking their work and making corrections. Hmm. You at home listening probably think that that's very sweet of her, and it is a bit, I suppose... But does she intend to do this for their whole lives, is what I'm wondering. If Edna from Manchester thinks that it'd be a good idea to correct every single tiny error her grandchildren make over the course of their entire lives, thus depriving them of the opportunities to learn from those mistakes and impart what they have learned from them onto their own children and in turn their grandchildren, then I'm sorry, but I have to disagree with her. I have to say, I don't think that she's thought this through at all. Let's move on. Four. I would haunt a butcher by making cow sounds. That was from Onkar in Slough. That's more like it. A simple but no doubt effective method of practising animal rights activism from beyond the grave. Very nice, Onkar. Very nice. Five. Five. I would show Putin the faces of all the opposition leaders he killed, says Debbie in Burnley, and then she continues. I'd print out an A4 picture of Alexei Navalny and attach it to the underside of a remote-control helicopter with double-sided tape, then hover it above his sleeping face. I don't know Debbie in Burnley, but I think it's safe to assume that the opportunity to do this would never arise within her lifetime, so she's really taking advantage of the unlimited access to all areas permit that comes with being a ghost, which I love. 6. Paul Hollywood. Replace sugar with salt. Arrogant, womanising piece of shit, says Rachel from Cardiff. Fun fact, I once convinced a 16-year-old in a pub on Brewer Street that Paul Hollywood is the blurry-faced taxi driver of fake taxi fame. At first, he thought I was joking, as I was, but then I asked him whether or not he'd ever seen Hollywood and the driver in the same room together, and of course, he hadn't, so there you go. I wonder if he still believes that. The role would rather suit him. Paul Hollywood, that is, not the 16-year-old boy. 7. I would haunt all the local MILFs in my area. That was from Chico in Bridge End. Chico, I do so hate to be the bearer of bad news, but as was confirmed by Ned from Putney in episode 1, said MILFs do not exist and are therefore unhauntable. Please pick someone else. 8. Shane in Thameside says, I would haunt my neighbour, Tracy, who always asks if I have any spare tomatoes, because she knows I'm allergic to them and she thinks it's funny. Fair enough, Shane. 9. Seb from Pontyprid, pronounced Pontyprith, says, I don't ma tan cock. I'd ask him if he wanted to see a magic trick, and he would, cos I'd be a ghost. Then I'd get him to put his two hands on the table. Then I'd fill up two champagne flutes with water and balance them on top of his two hands. When he looks up to ask me what happens next, I'm gone, cos I'm a ghost, and he's just sat there cos he's an idiot. OK, like the Putin one I read earlier, it's really more of a pranking than a haunting, but the vanishing into thin air was a touch. Well done, Seb. And finally, from Alexandra in Islington, I'd haunt the people who like dubstep by pressing skip at the drop. Lovely. That is, as the saying goes, all we have time for today. I have, since sitting down this afternoon, received confirmation that Mark Gonzalez, the spirit of skateboarding and the man behind this show's artwork, will be joining me in the next episode for a Q and A. If you have cues you'd like aing please do share them with us by emailing them to jess at blondie.com. That's jess with two s's at blondie with a y dot com. She says hi. I'm saying bye. So long. Farewell. Auf Wiedersehen. Adieu. To you and you and you. Goodbye.